All right, let's open our Bible to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. Um, and we're going to talk about the bride today. So we're going to read this whole chapter, but I'd like to read it in two parts if you don't mind. So I want to read to you, to begin with, Genesis chapter 29. I want to read the first 12 verses. So let's do that. Father, as we get ready to look into your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds by your Holy Spirit, that God, you would reveal truth to us and fill us with that truth and let that truth change us and transform us and set us free, Lord, from any lie, any deception that would hinder us and hold us captive, Father. We pray. We pray this for your glory, that you would do the work of transformation, conforming us to the image of your Son. Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis 29 Let's begin in verse 1. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was set on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there. And they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And so he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he looked. Then he said, look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be watered, uh, to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth, then the water, and then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. So I'm going to I want to break this chapter into two sections, and I want to look at this first section, which gives this picture of Jacob. Remember, he's left Isaac, he's left his father's home, and he's gone into another land. And we're going to see that this is a hostile land. Remember, this is a picture of Christ leaving his father's home and his father's land to come into a hostile land to take for himself a bride. And so Jacob has come now to this land, the land of his fathers, to take for himself a bride. And where does he come to? He comes to a well. Now, if you remember the story of Isaac, you remember when Abraham sent his servant to go get a wife for, for uh, his son Isaac. The servant of Abraham went to a well 
And there at the well, he found Rebekah. Well, now here is Jacob, the offspring of Isaac and Rebekah. He has gone from his father's land to find a wife. You see the reoccurring theme here? To go and find for himself a wife. And where does he go? He comes, he goes to a well. So he comes to this well and he sees Rachel coming with the sheep. And he moves the, uh, the, the stone away from the well so that Rachel can water there at the well. And he kisses her and he lifts up his voice and he weeps. Why does he lift up his voice and weep? Because he knows that he has found his bride. So Jacob, like his father Isaac, finds his wife at a well. And so this theme of the bride and a well is a picture of Christ and his bride. It pictures the bride of Christ in need of the water that her bridegroom will supply. So what I want to talk to you about as we look at these 12 verses is the thirsty bride. Jesus came for a bride, and the bride that he comes for is a thirsty bride. It's a bride that's thirsting for the water that only he can supply. And so we see this pictured in the New Testament with Jesus and the woman at the well at Sychar in Samaria. And this is in John chapter 4. So hold your place in Genesis. And let's go over to John chapter 4. And let's look at this account of of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4. I don't want to read. It's a lot here. It's actually the story is, is, is in the whole in chapter 4 all the way down to chapter 30. I mean, verse 30. But let's just begin. Look at, let's look at verse 5. So he, that's Jesus, came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Now, what was Samaria? Samaria was a region. It was, if you know your Old Testament history, Israel in the days of the kings became divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, which represented ten tribes, and there was the southern kingdom that represented two tribes. And the two tribes of the southern kingdom were Judah and Benjamin. And the northern kingdom, the capital of that kingdom Um, was Samaria. Now, this later on became known as a region, and these people that lived in this region were called Samaritans. Well, what happened in early history was this kingdom was divided, and the Samaritans stopped coming. The people in the northern kingdom stopped coming to worship in Jerusalem, and they made a place there on a mountain where they would go and they would worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But consequently, what happened with these people in the northern kingdom, the Samaritans, they blended with the Gentile tribes, and they became a blended people. In other words, Samaritans were, the Jews called them half-breeds. The Jews actually literally called them dogs. Dogs were not, if you were a Jew, you didn't have a dog. Dogs were unclean. You didn't like have a dog as a pet. As a shepherd, um, I I don't know how much they used dogs, but dogs weren't a favored animal to the Jews. And they referred to the Samaritans 
as dogs, and part of the reason was because of the interbreeding. And so these Samaritans were Jew and Gentile mixtures. And so it's very significant that Jesus has come through Samaria, and he stops at a well in Samaria, and he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Not only the fact that Jesus is talking to a woman, it's not just a woman, it's a Samaritan woman. She is a half-breed. She's a, a, a Jew and a Gentile mixture. This is significant for us. And this theme of the bride and the well that we see throughout Scripture, God put there as a picture of Christ who was going to come for a bride. It's not just an Old Testament picture, but we see this now in graphic proportion in the New Testament here in the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That means it was noontime, high noon, hottest part of the day. Jesus is there at the well, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now what's significant, it's significant that this woman comes at noon, because noon was not the time that everybody came to get water, which is exactly why she came at noontime. She wanted to come at noontime because she knew at noontime there would most likely not be anybody at the well. Why would this woman want to come to the well when there was nobody else there? Well, we're going to see as we go through this story here, we're going to see that Jesus begins to talk to her and his disciples have gone away into the city to buy food. And verse 9 says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? In other words, you're here and you don't even have a cup. You have no way to even get any water out of the well. How, where are you going to? Where's this living water coming from? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, "Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him." will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now you see the picture of Rebecca at the well with Isaac, the picture of Rachel at the well with Jacob, the picture of, of throughout the scripture of Jacob digging wells and and Abraham digging wells, and these things, David wanting a drink of water from the well in Jerusalem when he's in exile, these pictures of the well and the water, and especially of 
these patriarchs who found their bride at the well. These are pictures for us. It's it's like a road sign pointing us to Christ and his church saying that Christ is coming. There is a bridegroom coming for a bride. And the bride that he wants is a bride that is thirsting for the water of life. And so here is Jesus, and he says right out, I mean outright, if you would have known, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask me for a drink of the water of life. And because she is not understanding or perceiving, she is only understanding this in a natural sense. Very practically, she looks at him and says, you don't even have a cup. Where are you getting this water? This is a deep well. How are you going to get it? And Jesus goes on. He says, the woman answered and said, uh, I'm sorry. And the woman said, verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now we're talking about a thirsty bride. We're reading the story because we're in Genesis and we're looking at this picture of Jacob going to find a bride and he goes to a well and he encounters Rachel, a shepherdess who's coming to draw water for her father's sheep. But now in this story in John 4, we don't have a shepherdess who's drawing water for her sheep. We have a woman who is not married who's living with a man in sin, who is not her husband. Not only that, but she's had other husbands, numerous husbands besides him. And she's not coming to get water for her sheep. She's coming to get water for herself. And she's coming at a time of the day when she knows she will not have to encounter anyone else at the well. And lo and behold, just by chance, by sheer coincidence, she comes this day and there is this Jewish rabbi sitting at the well who begins to talk to her. And she says, why are you even talking to me, a Samaritan woman? You're a Jew. How is it that you're even addressing me? Because what she's used to from the Jews is pure disdain and loathing because she's a Samaritan Think about, compound that with her living situation. She's living in sin. Everything about her life says, I am worthy to be rejected by everyone around me. And obviously, she probably was, which is why she came at noontime to draw water in the heat of the day. But here is Jesus. And he says... He says, go and call your husband and come here. I don't have a husband. And Jesus says in verse 17, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. She's on her sixth man. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the lady goes back to the village. She leaves her water pot. She goes back to the village. She tells everyone in the village, come and meet a man who told me all things about myself. Come and see the Messiah. And we go on, if we read the rest of this, we'd see that the village comes out to Jesus. And and then the disciples come back and say, wow, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus makes this, this statement the, wheels, the, the fields are white with harvest. Lift up your eyes and behold, the fields are white with harvest. And you see this picture of these Samaritans coming across the field in their, in their white garments, which was very common for them to wear, coming to meet this man that this Samaritan woman had told them about, coming to meet their Messiah. Because if you understand something about, else about the history of that day, those people who would have known and trust me with everything that was happening in their culture, living under Roman occupation, living under the brutality of the Roman empire, the Jews had the scriptures. They had the old Testament scriptures. They were counting down the years from Daniel's prophecy. And the Jews knew that this was the time they were living in the time when Daniel's prophecy would utterly be fulfilled because Daniel gives us the timetable of when the Messiah would come. So there was an expectation. This is why they went out to John and they said to John, are you the Messiah? He said, I am not the Messiah. Are you the Christ? I'm not the Christ. Because they knew that sometime in that time frame, the Messiah was to come. And there was an expectation that the bondage and the brutality and the occupation that they lived under from Rome would be overthrown and the Messiah would set up his kingdom. And this woman, this lowly woman, this Samaritan woman comes to this well on this day, not expecting at all to encounter Jesus. And yet, When it's all said and done, she leaves her water pot and she goes back to the village and she compels the villagers to come because she has found the Messiah. Or we could say it like this. She found the bridegroom who came to take a bride. And that's exactly what Jesus did. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus spoke these words to a Samaritan woman who was not a bride. She wasn't married. She didn't have a husband. She was not a bride and she was not His people. She was outcast by the Jews. 
She was outcast by his people. She lived in a village called Sychar. That word Sychar means intoxicating. It's a Hebrew word that meant strong drink, intoxicating drink. Now think about this. I mean, how, think about how God has crafted this story. God sends his son from his house. The father sends a son from his house, from his land to another land to find a bride. And he sends his son and his son comes to a well and he encounters a woman from a city that means intoxicating drink to be intoxicated. How do you get intoxicated? You get filled with something and it's not water. You get filled with intoxicating drink. So here comes this woman from the city that means to be filled with intoxicating drink. She comes to a well and Jesus said, what you need to be filled with is the water, the living water that I can give you. Now, it doesn't say that she was drunk. That's not the point. The point is she's from a city that was known for people who were drunkards and filled with intoxicating drink. Jesus said, what you need to be filled with is living water. And if you would ask me, if you knew who I was, I would give you living water. Jesus didn't want her to be filled with strong drink. Jesus didn't want her to be filled with anything except the water of life of the spirit. And this is what he offers her. This is what God's people are to be filled with. We are to be filled with with his spirit. This is the water of life. So through faith in Christ, this Samaritan woman would be filled with living water and become part of the church. In other words, she would become the bride of Christ. Through faith, this woman who was not his people would become his people and be joined to him in one body by the spirit. Now, while while we're over in the New Testament, let's turn over to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5, let's look at verse 17. Paul writes, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Therefore, so what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's, it's because of everything he said in the previous part of this chapter. And one of the most important things he says in the previous part of this chapter is verse 8. Look at Ephesians 5, 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. How does darkness become light? Who does that? We go back to Genesis. That's why we're in Genesis. Remember the gospel didn't start in Matthew 1.1. The gospel started in Genesis 1.1. When God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And dark. There was darkness. There was no light. There were no stars. There was no sun. There was no moon. Imagine a world where there is no Light. I'm telling you, as close as you want to put your hand to your face, you could not see it because there is no light. There is only darkness. Where did the light come from? God said, let there be 
light, and there was light. Paul says, you once were darkness, but now you are light. How did darkness become light? God does that. How did you who once were darkness become light? God did that. You didn't do that. God did that. Therefore, you're not darkness anymore. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Understand, he says, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. In other words, don't be filled with strong drink. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the water of life. Be filled with eternal life. Be filled with the life of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. This is what Jesus is telling the woman at the well. He's not offering her literal, natural water. He's offering her literal, spiritual life. He's offering her eternal life. He's offering her his spirit. He says, you need to be filled with the water of life. You need to be filled with the spirit. You need eternal life. What you thirst for is not the water from this well. It's the water of life that only I can give you. Do you know how many people are thirsting for the water of life and they don't know it? So they're running to strong drink. They're being filled with alcohol and drugs and all kinds of things that we fill our life with. Seeking success or seeking power or seeking position or seeking a a feeling, whether it's a physical feeling or emotional feelings. We become codependent on people and places and things. And why? Because there's something that we're hungering for, we're thirsting for, and we're, we're looking in the wrong place for it. And this woman was really thirsty. That's why she came to that well in the middle of the day because she needed water. And she encounters Jesus. And the Bible tells us that we are not to be filled with wine in which is dissipation, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. So by grace, through faith in Christ, we become the bride of Christ. And we, by the way, Paul goes on in that chapter, you really should read the rest of it. He's not giving a marriage seminar there, though it actually applies to marriage. He's talking about Christ and the church. He's, He's... giving a picture of marriage, a husband and a wife, as a natural expression of a spiritual reality. That spiritual reality is Christ and his church. He says, this is how we're to love one another. This is how we're to relate to one another. Because our loving and our relating as husband and wife is a a natural expression of Christ and his church. The way we are to relate to one another as brother and sister, as members of the body of Christ, is a witness of, to powers and principalities of Christ and his church. The very fact that you're here today, you are giving witness to powers and principalities. Your life, every moment of your life is communicating something of God. It's giving a witness to something. Don't think that we're just in this room and nothing is happening. There there are things happening in the spirit realm right now. 
Our worshiping together, our gathering together, our praying together, our singing together, our coming to the table together, our study of scripture together is powerful. It's spiritual. There are things taking place in the spiritual realm. You can't see that with your natural eyes, but you need to know it with your spirit. And you need to know that what happens here, this is why the Bible says, don't forsake assembling yourselves together because there is something powerful and effective that happens when the body of Christ comes together. Listen, there's going to be something powerful and effective happen in the spirit realm when God's people come together tonight at St. Paul Lutheran Church. Now, if you go there just thinking, I wonder what this is going to be like for me. It's going to be kind of boring, you know. I hate these services. They're all just kind of boring, you know. I'd rather stay home and watch football or eat supper or play a game or take a nap or whatever. No, but if you understood the power of what's taking place, when the body of Christ comes together, you would never want to stay home. You'd never want to miss it. Because I'm telling you, this the church has missed it. We we judge everything based on this right here. Well, the service didn't make me feel very good today. You know, I didn't get very excited today. I, the songs were kind of a bummer. You know, they were kind of down or, you know, I kind of had a hard time. So, you know, and so and so wasn't, they, they weren't really friendly to me today. I wonder what, you know, we're, we're judging everything by externals. And we're totally and completely missing the spiritual reality and the spiritual power that's taking place. When we come together as the body of Christ, please, please, please pray that God would give you a revelation of that. That you would understand the importance of why we come together and what we do week in and week out. And so Paul is, this is what he's conveying in Ephesians 5. He's not just giving good marriage advice here. He's talking about the power and the spiritual witness of the church made manifest in our natural relationships with one another. So by grace through faith in Christ, we become the bride of Christ. And we who are not his people become his people. We become the people of God, even though we were not the people of God. We who were separated from him have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And now we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bone. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2.13. When he's writing about Jew and Gentile being brought together as one, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he writes in Ephesians 5.30. To the church. To all of us. To husbands. To wives. To children. To parents. To young. To old. To male. To female. To rich. To poor. It doesn't matter. He's speaking to the church. And he says. Don't you know that we are members of his body. Of his flesh. And of his bones. This picture of Rachel at the well. Is the picture of the bride of Christ. Who comes thirsty to the well of the water of life unknowingly unsuspectingly she comes and she encounters her bridegroom she didn't come there looking for a bridegroom she came there because she was thirsty but guess what the bridegroom went to the well because he was looking for a bride you didn't come to jesus because you were looking for a bridegroom jesus came to you because he was looking for a bride you and i were totally and completely unsuspecting when the bridegroom came looking for us 
So Christ has come for a bride that is thirsting for the water of life that only he can provide. Jesus declared in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And he compels us in John seven thirty seven on the on the last day of the great feast. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the last day of Tabernacles, there was the water pouring ceremony where they would have this joyous parade and they would go and they would draw water from Jacob's well and they would have this parade. I mean, like with dancers and jugglers and it was just this joyous occasion. It was the only feast that had that atmosphere of joy and celebration. Why? Because tabernacles represented Christ God who comes to dwell among us. And why is it so joyous? Because if God is going to come and dwell among us, that means that God has atoned for our sins. That means that God has accepted us and he now will dwell among us. This is the time to celebrate. Atonement just days before was the time when they would fast and they would, they would plead for God's mercy that he would atone for their sins. Tabernacles was a celebration because their sins had been atoned for. And on the last day of that great feast, that great day, Jesus stands in the midst of the temple and listen what he says. If anyone thirsts, this is while they're, listen, this is while they're getting ready to pour the water and do the water pouring ceremony, signifying the water, signifying the salvation of God. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What kind of water? Living water. Are you thirsting for the water that only he can supply? That's an important question. Are you thirsting for the water that only he can supply? Pray that God would fill you with his spirit. Pray that God would grant you a thirst. And from that thirsting, you would be filled. Now let's look at the last part of this chapter. Let's look at verses 13 through 35. Let's go back to Genesis. So we've seen the bride who is thirsty. So Jacob comes, he finds Rachel at the well, he weeps, he kisses her, he returns with her to her father's house. Twenty nine thirteen. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what you should what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should just give her to another man. Stay with me. 
So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpha to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what, what is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service, which you will serve with me still seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and so he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Beulah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob went into Rachel, and she also, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction now, therefore my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son she called his name Simeon, for the Lord has heard me, is what Simeon means. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son. And this time, she says, this time surely my husband will become attached to me. So she named him Levi, which means attached. Yet she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing Okay, there's a whole lot we could deal with in this last part of the chapter, but I'm going to deal with a very specific thing. So in the first part of the chapter, those first 12 verses, what we saw was a thirsty bride that was filled. What we see in these last verses of the chapter is a hidden bride that was revealed. So Leah was the hidden bride, the mystery revealed at the consummation, which represents the mystery of the Gentiles brought in with the Jew to become the bride of the son. Leah was the unknown or the hidden bride. Jacob didn't know he had married Leah until the morning after. It was revealed at the consummation. Rachel was the known or the visible bride. She both of these represent Jew and Gentile that would both become the bride of Christ. Now in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, but God has created in himself one new man from the two. The scripture teaches thus this truth in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he writes, speaking of Jew and Gentile in Ephesians two fifteen and 16, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. This picture of a hidden bride is not about Leah's ethnicity, okay? Leah was not a Gentile, and that's not the point. It's about her rejection because of who she was not. 
she was not Rachel. That was the problem. The Gentiles were rejected because of what they were not. They weren't Jews. We are all rejected. Listen, we are all rejected by God because of what we are not. Jew or Gentile. God rejects us because of what we are not. We are not righteous. We are not holy. We are not acceptable to him because we have become separated from him by sin and by death. This is a picture of all of us that are rejected because of what we are not. But in Christ, through a new birth, both Jew and Gentile are made righteous, married to Christ, and made one new man. So from Leah and from Rachel come one people. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from Jacob came the 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes represent one people called Israel. Jew and Gentile come together and from the two come one people in Christ. All those of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were called Israel as a natural expression of God's spiritual people. There wasn't anything about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob's DNA or ethnicity that made them more acceptable to God than other people. It had nothing to do with that. It was a work of grace. They were simply a work of God's grace and a natural expression of God's spiritual people. Now, all who are in Christ through faith, both Jew and Gentile, are called Israel and Abraham's seed by faith. Israel was and will always be the people of God, regardless of when or where they naturally come from. Paul writes it this way in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, in other words, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Or in Romans 9.8, Paul writes this, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Who are the children of the promise? The children of the promise are those from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation who by grace put their faith in Christ. And they are now called God's people. And how do they become God's people? They become God's people in Christ. The picture we see in Leah and Rachel is one who was unloved, and one who is barren. It says in verse 31 that when the, Lord, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. We see a picture of one being unloved and one being barren. This is our condition apart from Christ. We are unloved and we are barren. We are not accepted. And we are not fruitful. Apart from Christ, this is our condition, unloved and unfruitful. But in Christ, God loves us in spite of who we are and does not leave us 
who we are. Are you hearing me, church? God takes us out of death and darkness and translates us into life and light. God doesn't leave us who we are, and God doesn't leave us where we are. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. This is the power of God's love revealed to us in Christ, that God takes the unloved and the barren and makes them loved and makes them fruitful through faith in the life of His glorious Son, the Lord Jesus. The question is, do you know who you were And do you know who you now are in Christ? Do you know who you were? This is the importance of preaching a whole gospel. That we don't just tell people how wonderful they are. And we never bring up their sin. And we never bring up their struggle. And we never bring up the fact that we have become separated from God by our sin. Because if you don't know who you are... And if you don't know who you were, you'll never come to know and understand and comprehend who you are in Christ. You'll never know that. So do you know who you are? Who you were? Do you know who you now are in Christ? These are important questions. And until you thirst for the water of life, you'll never know who you will become in Christ. Until you thirst for him, you will never be filled. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for the watered brook, so my soul longs for you, O God. We can read that and just skip over that and not really catch the magnitude of thirst that is being conveyed in that psalm. I'm not talking about going to the refrigerator. Any of you guys ever done this? You go to the refrigerator, open it up, and you stand there. And I'm thirsty for something, but I don't know really what I'm thirsty for. Mm, Gosh. I don't want any milk. Mm. Tea? Mm, I don't think so. Gosh. And then when it's all said and done, you're thirsty, and you decide, what I'm thirsty for, I guess, isn't here because nothing really... You're not really thirsty. See, when the Bible talks about thirst, it paints a picture of someone that is so parched, so dry, their need for water is so great that they are panting, they are desperate to receive water to sustain their life. Do you know that Jesus is the well of living water? And without his water, there is no sustaining of life. That we're not just drinking to scratch some itch that we have. But we are drinking because it is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of barrenness or fruitfulness. You know trees can't bear fruit without water. You ever notice that? You plant a fruit tree and you never water it. And you know, we can go long stretches of time around here in central Texas without rain. And if that tree doesn't get water, you know what's going to happen to it? I've got a dead tree in my front yard right now. 
it, I just have left it there. It's totally and completely dead. It rained a lot on it, but it will not come back to life because it is dead. And the only way it'll come back to life is if God does some miracle and makes it live again. Kind of a picture of us, right? We're dead. <laughs> poor Kool-Aid, poor Powerade, poor Gatorade, poor Monster Drink, poor whatever you want, coffee, tea, milk, pour whatever you want on us and in us till God brings us to life. And this is his point. The water that I have is the water of life. You come to the well because you are in need of water and thirsty. The well does not make you thirsty. The well satisfies your thirst. We fall into this trap in the church that on Sunday morning we think our job is to make people hungry and thirsty. If we'll have a certain kind of music and a certain kind of lights and a certain kind of building and a certain kind of atmosphere, we can make people thirsty and then they'll want Jesus. No, that's not how it works. People don't come to a well and they stand there. What are you doing? I'm waiting to see whether this well is going to make me thirsty or not. And you walk away and you say, well, the well didn't make me thirsty. Boy, forget that well. That's no good. Now, you come to the well because you're thirsty. If you come to the well thinking the well is going to make you thirsty, the reality is you're not thirsty. You're not hungry and you don't really want what's in the well. You want something else, but it's not what's in the well. But when you're truly thirsty and you come to a well filled with water, you're not going to have a problem drinking that water because you thirst. And you're not going to walk away and say, this and that, no. And I'm not talking about just any well, because the well I'm talking about is Jesus the well of living water. And if Jesus, who is the living water, does not satisfy your thirst, then you're not thirsty. And you don't want Jesus. You want something else that scratches this flesh that is itching. And remember what I told you that God wants to do with your flesh. He don't want to scratch it. He doesn't want to condition it. He don't want to make it prettier. He wants to do one thing and one thing only with it. He wants to kill it. He wants to crucify your flesh. And what we've fallen into in church in America is we've become really good at scratching people's fleshly itches when what they really need is to drink from the water, the well of living water, who is Jesus. And if Jesus can't satisfy your hunger or your thirst, then it will never be satisfied at least not by him, until you become hungry and thirsty for him. We don't call people to Jesus in hopes that they become thirsty for him. We call all people, and we hope and we pray that those who are thirsty will trust in him, will come to him and be satisfied. We don't call only the thirsty. We call all to come and drink, trusting that those thirsty will come and will drink. So when people come to the church, when people come to our services, this is the importance of the gospel. We're offering them one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus. 
And we're telling them there is only one thing that will satisfy your thirst. There's only one thing that can fill your hunger. His name is Jesus. And if you come here for anything else, I am very remiss in my responsibility to make you think that anything else I can give you is going to help you and be good for you because it will not. So if I can't create a thirst in you, if the pastor can't, if the worship can't, if the lights can't, if the music can't, well, it can make our flesh feel good. It can make us want more fleshly things. But if it can't really create in us a true spiritual hunger, then who can? I'll tell you who can. God can. And if you suspect that your hunger and your thirsting is not what it should be, then what should you do? I would suggest pray. That's what I do, pray. And I say, God, make me thirsty. God, I feel as though my thirst is not what it should be. God, make me thirsty for you. God, make me hungry for you because I feel like my appetite is turning toward things other than you. God, I want to be hungry for you and for your righteousness. Pray and ask God to do that. He will. We can't create a thirst in people. Only God can do that. We call people to come and to drink of the water of life. Christ is that well. He is that water. I pray that you are thirsting for him and that you know that without his living water, there is no life. That water not only gives us life, but it makes us fruitful. Water has a way of bringing that which is parched and dry and distressed back to flourishing life and fruitfulness. I've got a fig tree that's been growing in a pot now for too long. And in the heat of the summer, those leaves will just be wilted. And I'll just give that thing a good drink, and it's amazing. Just a couple of hours later, it's just those leaves are standing up and they're full and they're firm. It needed water. And without water, not only will it not live, it will never be fruitful. This is what God does for us in Christ. In Christ, there will never be a time of drought that will not be broken with the water and life of his son poured out and welling up in us. The hope we have is not that there will never be a drought, but that God will always break the drought with the water of life of the Spirit in His Son, the Lord Jesus. God never said you would never go through drought in your life. He said, I am the water of life. And you will never thirst again. In other words, you'll never be without water again in me. Listen, the land can go through drought and there can be sources of water in certain places. This is what Jesus is saying. I'll be your source, your never-ending source of water, even in the times of drought all around you. The hope we have is, is, is this. You were once unloved, but you were once barren. You were once unloved, you were once barren, but now we have hope. How do we have hope? Because Christ has come 
to love you and to make you fruitful, to pour out and immerse you in the water of life, in the Spirit of God, in Him, in Christ by His grace. Now you are loved, and now you are fruitful. Why? For His glory. For His glory. This is the picture of Leah and Rachel, the unloved and the barren, the two that became the bride, and from the two comes one people. And now in Christ, we are loved and we are fruitful. And to Him be all the glory. Amen.